0: When we think of Good Friday, we should, of course, think of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And yet, in Mark's account of Jesus' final hours, did you notice that the actual crucifixion was told with incredible brevity? Chapter 15, verse 24, it's four words in English, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Whole movies have been made about the crucifixion of Jesus, each one seemingly with more violent detail than the last. And these have powerful emotion, a powerful effect on people's emotions. I'm sure I've preached, I know I have, I've preached sermons on the medical description of crucifixion. And of course, you have to go to outside sources, outside the Bible for information on that. I'm not sure I should spend too much time doing that in the future. Why didn't Mark tell us those details with more heavy drama, more graphic detail? Well, I mean, one obvious answer is that Mark was first writing to first century people, Jews and Romans, and and they would know exactly what happened and what it looked like and what it meant when he succinctly said and they crucified him. That's like Someone saying, I went to the grocery store. Well, you could write as many words as you want about that, boring as it is. You just know what it's like. He was writing to first century folks, but keep this in mind as well. Whether we're talking about the first century or 21st century, the gruesome details of the crucifixion of Christ can evoke horror or pity without faith. In fact, gruesome details by themselves or as the center stage might evoke a kind of sympathy and sadness that resembles faith. It looks like faith. It looks devout. But perhaps it's not saving faith. I remember some years ago going to see Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ when that first came out. I went to the theater and it was packed and tears were aplenty. I remember looking around at all those weeping in the room and wondering, are all these people truly Christians? Do all these people truly know what this cross means, what it's for, why it's needed, how they fit into that plan? Do all of these people weep, weep like this? at the preaching of the cross or at communion or at the simple reading of God's word. Mark only records, and they crucified him. Instead, his focus is on the response to Jesus and the results that come from him being crucified. Or put another way, Mark is not only concerned to record for us the historical details or facts of Jesus' crucifixion, but to communicate the proper interpretation of it and to call for a response to it. So let me suggest four responses to or results of the crucified Christ in Mark 15. The first is ironic Mockery. Ironic mockery. You've got the soldiers and scribes and passers-by all delving deeply into ironic mockery. The mockery actually begins before the crucifixion. The soldiers, from where we started reading in verse 16, their mockery begins there and, of course, leads up to the crucifixion. The soldiers perform a mock coronation of Jesus. They gather a battalion of soldiers 600. They gather 600 soldiers around Jesus for some hazing that would that would cause the bulliest bully you know to blush. It's just too much. Strip him of his clothes. Put on him a purple cloak for royalty. A crown of thorns. And they shove it down hard and good. They salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! No doubt they laugh. How ironic. He is the king of the Jews. They should salute him so much more. They strike his head, showing their dominance on him, not to mention the pain. They spit upon him. They kneel down in homage to him. Again, how ironic. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow. They got a head start. They didn't know it. They mocked him. Then they stripped him of the purple robe that they gave him. They de-kinged him after they kinged him. They put on his normal clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. The severity of their beatings is demonstrated by the fact that Jesus had to have another man carry his cross. The vertical piece of the cross was usually kept out in the crucifixion fields in various places around around Jerusalem or all in the Roman area. But then the one being crucified would carry the horizontal piece, about 100 pounds. And most men could do it, even after their beatings. Jesus couldn't. And so a passerby is tapped, more than tapped. He's forced to carry Jesus' cross for him. And we're given a lot of detail about this man. If you've got your Bible still open, notice verse 21. He's Simon of Cyrene. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. In other words, he's a real guy. He has real names and real kids, and people know these kids. Likely, Simon became a Christian. Likely, Alexander and Rufus became Christians. They were known in the Christian community. Likely, as Mark is writing this, they're still alive. They're not just real people, but they're living testimonies. You can go find them. The story checks out. The soldiers lead him to the hill called the Skull. Outside the city, but on on a prominent road, no doubt. That was part of Roman crucifixion, was to, to put fear in others. This might happen to you if you don't watch it. Wine was offered to Jesus in verse 23, but don't think that's sympathy. That's not to dull the pain for his comfort. It's most likely to dull the pain to prolong his suffering To prolong this game. That's what it is games that they're doing in verse 24 when they're dividing up his garments. He's on the cross, and before he's dead, long before he's dead, they've now taken his garments. He's naked. A big part of the cross was humiliation. They're having sport of it, gambling for his garments. Then there's the inscription that's placed over his head on the cross. It it was the charge. Verse 26 tells us. It read, the king of the Jews. That was the charge. He said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate, in God's providence, ironically wrote, the king of the Jews. Not he said he was the king of the Jews. He wrote, the king of the Jews. It spoke more accurately than anyone there knew. The passers-by They mock. Verse 29 and 30. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. Again, how ironic, because the temple of his body was being destroyed right before their very eyes. An essential part of the Temple building would in just hours be destroyed. The curtain, we'll come to that in a little bit. The whole temple structure would be destroyed in less than a generation. And in just three days from this, a new temple would rise up the temple of his body, referring to his resurrection. These passers by thought that the cross proved that Jesus' prediction of temple destruction and temple resurrection was, was er- erroneous, false. But the cross was actually the first half of the prediction. Then the priests and scribes join in with the mockery. Verse 31 the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, quote unquote, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. How even more ironic is this? They practically state the truth accidentally, unintentionally. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Indeed, in order to save others, he cannot save himself. It's one or the other. Either he's dying in the place of others, or he's saving himself. Notice where they're putting the accent. Saving self. Thinking just like all humans do. Look out for number one. If this guy isn't good enough at looking out for number one, if he can't save himself, what good is he to save others? They say, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Of course, if he came down, they wouldn't have believed. They've already witnessed miracles, one after another, that Jesus has performed. And with each one, it only made them more angry, more jealous, more fearful, and more conspiring. For his death. You see, even today it's true. Those who make tests for God aren't really looking to believe, they're only looking to make more self made excuses about their unbelief. Don't say to God, I believe if you would do this or that. And then the criminals also reviled. Do you find this mockery and abuse repulsive? Do you find it re- repulsive? Unthinkable? I hope so. I hope so. But but no, know, know also that this horrific scene is simply representative of any and all. Sin, yours and mine. Yes, these sins in Mark 15 are particularly heightened in their vividness, in their clarity. But all sin is a rejection of God. All sin is a rebellion against God. And all blatant sin is a form of resentment against God. I don't think you're really good. I don't think you know what's best for me. I think you're just a killjoy. I think you just don't want me to have what I think is mine, what I got coming to me. Notice that seemingly everyone is involved in the rejection of Jesus. All kinds of people. You have Jews and Gentiles. They didn't partner up for much in these days, but they partnered up for this. You have leaders and lay people. You have the upright and the criminal. You have those at the center of the controversy and those at the periphery. You have Jesus' avowed enemies and, and even his closest friends, the disciples. They aren't here. One of them betrayed him, turned him in. Chapter 14, verse 50. The rest, it says, all left him and fled. Some verses in John's gospel come to mind for me at this point. John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own people, and yet his own people did not receive him. And then in John three. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. That's all of us, all of us, unless God intervenes. It's ironic mockery here in Mark 15. It's telling mockery, but let's not forget, it's futile mockery, isn't it? It's futile. Secondly, we see morbid curiosity. Morbid curiosity. First, ironic mockery. Secondly, morbid curiosity. This one will move much more quickly than the one before. Here we see gawkers who want to watch and see if something interesting will happen. Verse 35. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. So someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. They said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What is this all about? Well, as you probably know if you've been with us in our study of Mark so far, that some thought that John the baptizer was Elijah, that old prophet from the Old Testament, that that prophet brought back. Some also thought that Jesus was Elijah. Many Jews in Jesus' time also thought that Elijah was something of the patron saint of sufferers, the patron saint of sufferers. So they thought that if this Jesus is who he says that he is, then there will likely be some sort of unusual rescue from this horrific predicament he's in. It could be that they mistook some part of Jesus' Eloi, Eloi cry. Maybe they thought, Eloi, Eloi, did I hear Elijah in there? well, let's just wait and see about this. I mean, if Elijah comes down from heaven surfing on the back of an angel and rips Jesus off this cross without harm, I want to see that. They're curious. They're not even saying, if that happens, then surely we'll believe. No, they're just saying, let's just wait and see. Many today aren't against Jesus per se. They are, in fact, curious. Perhaps they even like all the fantastical parts of the Bible, the bizarre stuff that happens. Maybe they love the mystery of it all. They have questions and love to talk about those questions. And when those questions get answered, they have new questions. They love remaining in a state of curiosity without conclusion or commitment. Is that you? You see something of yourself and these bystanders? Let's wait and see. Thirdly, there's divine explanation. Divine explanation. Verses 33 and 34 give us three events that help us to see what this is really about. You have verse 33, the sky darkened. There's one event. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is an interpretive event. This is at noon. Darkness over all the land. Darkness is clearly, so often in the Bible, a symbol of God's judgment. His presence in Judgment. This doesn't mean God isn't there. It means He is there. If you want to ask the question, what did God think of all of that rejection and mockery and crucifixion of Jesus? Well, you just look at the sky at noon that day. And then you also remember Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land desolate. For the stars of the heavens and their consolations, including the sun, will not give their light. The sun will be dark, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, wicked, the wicked for their iniquity." I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Or just think of Amos 8. On that day, declares the Lord, on some day in the future, on a day to come, back in Amos' day, God said, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Sorry, bald guys. Baldness is apparently a judgment from God. I just now realized that. Now let's not get humorous here. The sky was darkened. That is the judgment of God. The cross is not just our redemption. The cross is an indication Of his people's rejection, and hence it's proof of his judgment. Then we see Jesus' cry. Here's another divine explanation for what's going on. Jesus' cry in verse 34, three hours later, Jesus cried with a loud voice in English, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he pray that? Why did he ask that? How could that even happen? Oh, whole books are written on that question, those kind of questions. Let me say a few things. One, all of us should acknowledge, from scholars to the simplest of Christians, that this is mysterious. It's mysterious what is happening here and how it could be happening within a triune God. Secondly, Jesus was not just enduring suffering and death went upon the cross, but he was bearing sin upon the cross. He was bearing God's judgment upon the cross. He was bearing the curse. So Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because in the Old Testament it said, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's why the Messiah had to die to bear a curse. Notice as he's bearing this curse, there's no answer from heaven, only silence. Other times before, something special has happened in the life of Jesus, and and God has spoke, the Father has spoke from heaven, this is my son, in you I am well pleased, he said. And here he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's Silence. There is some sort of relational separation going on here. It is not just physical pain that Jesus is enduring. But thirdly, he says this phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's quoting from Psalm 22. A psalm of David, written a thousand years before Jesus. And a psalm, by the way, that has so many fingerprints left here in Mark 15. Turn to uh, to Psalm 22, if you have your Bible open with you. Listen to Psalm 22. This is just marvelous. Again, Jesus not only quotes from the very first verse of Psalm 22, but Psalm 22 has so many foreshadows of the cross of the whole crucifixion scene. So verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? you skip to verse 7 and you see all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And then verse 14. David writes, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before that was written? Yes. And David went on to to pray, to ask for help. But you, O Lord, he says, do not be far off, O you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. And from there, David goes on in the psalm to turn to praise and to recount his trust in God and to recount his confidence in God's praise spreading globally one day. You see, verse 27 All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. In the last verse, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus most likely in quoting one verse of psalm 22 has all of psalm 22 in mind and so yes he was forsaken in a sense but he was also trusting and he was praising and he would be delivered quickly if 3 days is quick enough for you and he would be the means by which the ends of the earth would come to worship one more divine explanation Verse 37 and 38, the curtain torn. The sky was darkened, Jesus' cry of being forsaken, and then the curtain is torn. Again, it's another interpretive event. It's right after he breathed his last, verse 37 says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a historical reality, but it's symbolic of so much more than the thing itself. The curtain or veil that it's referring to here is is likely that one that covered the entrance into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was that inner chamber of the temple, thought to be God's throne room on earth. Only the high priest could enter that. And him only once a year, and only with sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. And only if he purified himself. In specific ways. Only then could he enter. Think of it this way. The veil was in some ways meant to communicate. Do not enter. No entrance here. For all but the priest and him only once a year. It meant do not enter. The veil itself. According to later writings. Was 80 feet tall. It was 24 feet wide. And it was said to be as thick as a man's hand is wide. That's thick. It was a tapestry. It was a tapestry so big that when it needed to be moved or replaced or something, 300 priests were required. It was a tapestry which made up a vivid portrait of heaven. And earth, the meeting place, here it is. And it was that curtain, that massive curtain, that do not enter symbol, that space between heaven and earth that was torn in two when Jesus died. And it was torn in two from top to bottom as if God himself had struck it down. No earthquake, could have done that there's no practical explanation for it no sneaky disciple with a sharp knife is going to get on a two-bit ladder and get this feat done the tearing of the temple of tearing of the of the curtain in the temple symbolized the end of those old sacrifices It symbolized a new and living way to enter into God's presence. It's through Jesus and the cross alone. And it symbolized free and open access that's now available to all who would believe in Christ's sacrifice. You say, well, where'd you get all that? It just says the temple was torn in two. How did you know it meant all that? Well, because of Hebrews 10. It says, where there is forgiveness of sins... There is no longer any offering for sin, no more sacrifices. And then it says, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. That curtain was also torn. Because of that, let us draw near let us run on in with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. So, from the foreshadows of the cross in Psalm 22, and from the sky being darkened at noon, indicating that a long ago promised day had come, and from the inexplicably torn curtain right as Jesus dies, we see that all of this was according to plan. This was no accident. As early as Mark 2, Jesus talked about the day when the bridegroom would be taken away from the disciples, taken away, and they would mourn. He foretold his coming rejection and death and resurrection three times chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He said it plainly and clearly and specifically. He even explained the need for going to the cross. He told them what it meant, not just that he would, but that he had to come and be a servant to be a ransom for many, a payment for sins. All this is taking place as Jesus is upon the cross. And no one sees it. No one, no one believes it. Not in Mark's telling of the story. The disciples all fled in fear. Those who were happily with him at his triumphal entry, singing and laying down their palm branches, they've somehow gone someplace else. They're nowhere to be found. There's only opposition and persecutors and mockers and gawkers. Except one. Now there's true confession. Fourthly, true confession. Ironic mockery, morbid curiosity, divine explanation. And it ends with true, surprising confession. Verse 39, a Roman centurion. He's the first one to see and believe in a crucified Christ. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that he in this way breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. He believed not because Jesus saved himself. Not because Jesus came down from the cross. Miracle as that would be. That's what the priest and scribe said. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But the centurion believed because he saw The way in which Jesus died. And I take that to mean how he loud, he utterly cried aloud, verse 37. He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I think it means he believed because he saw that he died willingly and humbly and yet powerfully. I mean, scholars say it wasn't common in these days for people to be crucified and for their last breath to be this long shout. You're asphyxiating as you die in crucifixion. I don't know how you shout as you're asphyxiated. But Jesus did. The centurion had no doubt seen many crucifixions. He'd maybe never seen one like this. And somehow, and that's not enough information, I know, but, but God is sovereign. Somehow this man concluded that Jesus was the Son of God, which, by the way, is the answer. It's, it's the culmination of Mark's book. This is where he began with a thesis statement in one one that this is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what the Father said at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son." This is what he said at the Transfiguration. In chapter nine, the voice from heaven spoke again, "This is my beloved Son. In a centurion confessed Jesus as the Son of God, a centurion. In other words, one of his executors. One of the executioners was one, was the only one to see Jesus as the son of God. Which, by the way, doesn't mean something less than God if he's son of God. My son isn't any less of a Kelly because he's the son of a Kelly. He's still a Kelly. There are three persons in the triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God. He is the Son of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A Roman confessed him as the Son of God, not a Jew, but a Gentile and a Roman. Like all Romans, especially soldiers and even more their commanders, they had sworn allegiance to the Emperor. And the Roman emperor had long ago taken the title God or Son of God for himself. They confessed the Roman emperor as the Son of God. And so this centurion's confession of Jesus as the Son of God was a repudiation of of all Roman religion. And not just religion, but nationality and economy and politics. They were all bound up together. A repudiation of it all. And by the way, that's always the case whenever anyone comes to Jesus. There has to be something you repudiate, there has to be something you give up on, something you used to believe, but Jesus gets in the way of it. A Gentile would come to believe and see all this. Yeah, remember the ending of Psalm 22? That all the ends of the earth would turn to the Lord and all the families of the peoples would worship him. So this man, as the temple curtain was torn in two and he confessed Christ as the Son of God, he entered in. He entered in. What a beautiful and powerful way Mark has told us this story. At least for the careful reader, Son of God being bookends from beginning to end. And in chapter 1, the heavens, it says, were torn open. And the Father said, This is my Son. And then in chapter 15, the temple curtain is torn open. And he, the centurion, confesses, This man was the Son of God. He has entered in. Have you? Have you? Still today, some want Jesus gone, out of the picture, killed or however removed. Removed from talk, removed from conscience, removed from your belief and joy. Still today, some love to mock. They love to mock. Some still test him. Some still say, if you do this or that, I will believe You just haven't met my expectations yet. Some today are open and curious. But they too still want Jesus on their own terms. And some today still are given the faith to see Jesus upon the cross. Whether literally in this man's case or through words in our case today. Some are given the faith to see the cross as the epicenter of history and as the key to identifying Jesus, not as an obstacle to identifying him, but as the key to identifying him. So, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? The Bible says he's the Christ, the promised one, the answer, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the King of the Jews and the King of all creation. But what did he come to do? Well, there are theories out there. But What the Bible says is that he came to give his life as a ransom or a payment. He came to die. And how do we know that all this is true? Well, because the veil of the temple was torn in two. Because a Roman centurion who killed him confessed him as God. Because here we are today, 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet, meeting together just as billions of other Christians are doing today and will do on Sunday morning. We know this is true because God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Come back Sunday and we'll talk more about that. Until then, Christian believe and fully stand on and stand in all the promises and gifts that are yours because Jesus did this and because he was raised in the third day. It changes everything. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our God, our Savior through Christ, it's through him we pray, it's in him that we meet. It's by him that we have any hope at all. Where we have seen, Lord, where we have faith, where we have clarity about who he is and what he came to do and how we know this to be true, we know it's from you. It's not of our own doing. All of us would reject, all of us would deny. We thank you that in time, Lord, you have, for many of us in this room, you've opened our eyes to see We one day realized that he was the Christ. We confessed our sins. We prayed and asked for salvation, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. For him to be our ransom as we believe him to be. Help us to marvel. Help us to stand in awe at the wonder, the glory, and the goodness. And all the many benefits that are ours. Because Christ died for us. We pray in his name.